Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded. In 2010, a guy set himself on fire in Tunisia and eventually died. People went out into the streets and demanded that the dictator of Tunisia had to go. And soon, millions of people across the Middle East were doing the same thing, including in Syria. You might not remember this, but the war in Syria actually started as a protest. Pretty soon, though, government forces started shooting protesters and people started fighting back. That's when it became a civil war, government versus anti-government. But then it became something else. I covered Syria back then, and to go there, we would have to sneak over the border from Turkey. And at one point, we started to see these other guys crossing the border, too. Guys with long beards and short pants carrying gun-sized boxes. Guys who would say they were doctors but looked like something else. Guys from the Gulf, the former Soviet Union, Europe, Northern Africa. And the Turks wanted to let these guys into Syria so they could help fight against the Syrian government. What they didn't know, what none of us knew, was that eventually... Some of these guys who came over the border would have other goals. Like fighting not just the Syrian government, but anyone who stood in the way of their ultimate goal. To build an Islamic state. That was how it all started. Today's show is about how it ends. That's coming up. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Rothy's, the everyday flat for life on the go. In four fashionable styles for women, the flat, the point, the loafer, and the sneaker. Fully machine washable with fun designs and patterns. Add pops of color to every outfit while still looking polished and professional. Best of all, Rothy's are made from recycled plastic water bottles, turning single-use plastics into something both beautiful and useful. Go to rothys.com and enter code EMBEDDED to get your flats and free shipping. The current opioid epidemic is the worst in American history. But this isn't the first time we've been here. This week on Throughline, the stories of three opioids that have haunted the U.S. for over a century. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. If you've been following the news, you know that ISIS has now been driven out of its territory in Syria and Iraq. Some hardcore fighters are dead, some are in prison, some are regrouping around the region. But what they've left behind is a newer and, in some ways, even more complicated problem. Tens of thousands of people who were living under the Islamic State now have nowhere to go. The world literally does not know what to do with them. Some of them are women and children who chose to follow their husbands or boyfriends or fathers to ISIS territory. Others were forced to go or kidnapped. And there are others, men who lived and worked under ISIS, but it's not clear if they actually fought or killed anyone. And what's more complicated... A lot of these guys are from Europe and North America, countries that aren't super eager to bring back anyone affiliated with ISIS. Ruth Sherlock covers Syria for NPR, and she's been reporting on the people who ISIS left behind for months. 
And she has the story of one woman who's looking for her brother. To protect her privacy, we're calling this woman Rima. And her story is all about what you do when someone you love gets caught up in a situation that is way bigger than you could have imagined. Here's Ruth. Even before he disappeared, Rima worried about her older brother. She worried because he was in his 30s and struggling. He had trouble keeping jobs. She says he'd sometimes leave his home for months, even years at a time, and cut off contact with his family in Canada. He seemed depressed. And then, one day, Rima heard that the police had come to her parents' house. Apparently her brother had been stopped trying to cross from Canada into the U.S., and the officer, the U.S. officer, asked him, why are you coming here? And my brother told him that I have a meeting with John McCain. As in Senator John McCain. Rima says the people at the border turned him back, and then the police came to alert the family. And when she talked to her brother about it... He told me the same story, my brother. Huh? He told me that he received an email from John McCain, and he was a guest, and he wanted to go to Washington to meet him. When he told me this, I'm like, okay, God, he's just sick. He had. I called my mama. I told her, could you please call a doctor and just bring your son in the hospital? And she said, no, no, he's just doing a depression. Don't worry. I'm like, no, mom. No, please. Rima comes from a large family. She and her siblings are these high achievers who all went to university and landed good jobs. All that is, except for this brother, he wasn't academic. He liked to party and to stay out late. To Rima, it didn't matter if her brother had a college degree or what job he did. He was her big brother, the one who liked to make her laugh. Who's that for, he'd tease when she put on lipstick. Like, who are you trying to impress? Not long after the John McCain incident, her brother had a fight with their parents and left home again. At first, Rima told me, the family thought that he'd go away and cool down, then come back home, just like he had before. But this time was different. Months went by, then years. They couldn't get in touch with her brother, couldn't find him. Until last May, four years after Rima's brother went missing, when a letter from the Red Cross arrived at her parents' house. It said that Rima's brother was in prison, in Syria. To fully appreciate what happens next, you need to know what the letter didn't say. It didn't tell her which Syrian prison her brother was in, or where it was, or why he was there. And it definitely didn't say that someone in his family, someone with two young children and a full-time job, should cross the border of a country at war and try to find him. But Rima had already decided. The moment that I received this information... I said, I'm going to go over there and see my brother. It was, it was logical for me. It was logical for Rima, maybe. It was not logical for the Red Cross or the Canadian government, who Rima says both told her that going to Syria to find her brother was a bad idea. So Rima kept her plans quiet. She didn't even tell her parents. But there was one person that she had to tell. On a night when he'd gotten home early and before he'd even sat down, Rima told her husband she wanted to go to Syria. It did not go well. When I told him that I have to go, he said, it's crazy, you cannot go there. You have babies, you have two kids. And he was very upset. What if something happens to you, he said. What about me and the kids? 
And I told him, but my kids, they have you. They have everybody. But my brother, he have nobody. I told him, if you was in this case, you want that someone go there and look for you. He heard her out, and he said okay. So Rima made some calls, and eventually she got in touch with an Austrian woman who has a daughter detained in Syria and makes trips there to see her. Book a flight to Iraq, the Austrian woman told Rima. You can do this. When I meet up with Rima in late January, it's her first day in Syria. She travelled here with the Austrian woman. They're staying in a hostel, in the only room that has heat. There's a furnace that spits out these terrible diesel fumes. A day ago, Rima wasn't even sure she'd make it across the border. They lost a whole day, scrambling to get officials on the phone, begging for permission. Which might not sound like much, until you consider that Rima has only planned to be in Syria for four days. She has to go back to her family. What are you here hoping to achieve? Like, what do you want to get out of this trip? First step is to see him. For me, this is the first step. She's done her research, and she has a few numbers to call. Military and political types she thinks might be willing to help her. Rima seems so confident that I don't want to tell her what I'm thinking. Her odds of success don't seem good. She's already spent months calling the Canadian government, asking for more information with little luck. It's hard to imagine that in Syria a country that's been at war for eight years, a place where she knows no one, things will be easier. But remember, Rima's got her own definition of logical. And as we're talking, I can see firsthand how being one lone person, trying to get the attention of your government, can lead to some crazy ideas. Like this one. I'm going to just put my passport in the garbage, burn, walk in the street, they're going to ask me, can I have your ID? Don't have ID? Maybe they're going to arrest me, and then it will be perfect for me. Perfect, she thinks, because if she gets locked up in Syria, Canada will have to come to get her. And when they come for her, they can also get her brother. Please, please don't do that. <laughs> That's my producer, Greg. What? But seriously, I will do it. But seriously, she's not going to do it. She assures me of that later. But that she even thinks about it tells me something. She knows what she's up against. And I should say right here, she's only agreed to let me follow her if I keep her brother's identity private. So we're not going to say where in Canada her parents live, or where they're from, or where Rima lives now. Wow. The next day I'm in my hotel room when I get a call from Rima. I cannot speak too much, Uh but but I speak with this man, this uh, big responsible. The big responsible, it turns out, is a man named Radur Khalil. He's a commander in the Kurdish-led military, known as the Syrian Democratic Forces. This phone call is big news, because if you're trying to find someone locked up in this part of Syria, you can't do better than the Kurdish-led military. They're the US-backed forces who control this part of Syria. They fought ISIS with US support. And, maybe more to the point, they control the prisons. So he told me, okay, no problem, we can, uh, we can arrange a meeting. When, when does he want to meet? It's today in the afternoon. I rush over to the hostel where Rima is staying. Halil, the man on the call, sends a car to pick us up. He works at a military base about a 15-minute drive away. 
On the drive there, Rima tells me about the call she had with him about her brother. He told me, how do you know he's there? And I told him that the Red Cross told us that he's in the northeast of Syria. And then he said, okay, give me all the information. Could you please send me a picture of him? And I will try to find him. The whole thing sounded surprisingly easy. More like talking to customer service than a military commander in the middle of a war. He said, okay, no problem. I will call you in the afternoon and we can have a meeting to discuss about this. driving into the, I think it's an SDF base or a, a Saij, the Kurdish police base. When we pull up to the military base, Reda Khalil is waiting outside. He's tall with thick silver hair and he's wearing military fatigues. He welcomes us inside. Khalil <laughs> is used to dealing with armed forces, aid workers, journalists. A young woman coming to Syria to find her brother in prison is something new. And he wants to help her. Khalil sits down and opens a file. He confirms that her brother is in prison, arrested by the Kurdish-led military in late 2017. Then he reads a statement that he says the brother gave to his captors. He says her brother came to Turkey, to Istanbul, and met up with a group of foreigners, Tunisians, Egyptians, French. He reads from the file in Arabic. After this, they went to the Turkish-Syrian border and in the city of Tabqah. They stayed there for six weeks. Your brother took a Sharia law course and a military course. He was then given weapons and he headed towards the front line in Damascus province, which means he became a fighter for ISIS. He became a fighter for ISIS. Rima puts her head in her hands. The truth is, I'd suspected it. It's hard to imagine why else Rima's brother would be in a prison in this part of Syria at this time. Later, Rima tells me she suspected it too. But to hear it out loud, from no less than a commander in the military that fought ISIS, is still shocking. And then comes another twist. He stayed there for a period of time and then he turned over his weapons and he decided to escape from ISIS and go to Canada. But before he made it to Turkey, ISIS caught him and took him to prison. Rima looks stunned. So her brother joined ISIS, tried to leave ISIS and was imprisoned by ISIS. He was transported to ISIS's main prison. The black prison. I can't tell if Rima knows what this means, but I do. The black prison was notorious. It used to be the main sports stadium in the Syrian city of Raqqa, but under ISIS it became a venue for public executions and a prison with torture chambers. After a time though, according to the file, Rima's brother said ISIS actually let him go. He kept moving between houses, and this is after the liberation of Raqqa. So he kept moving between houses for four months, until our forces found him and arrested him. And now he is imprisoned by the intelligence service of the Syrian Democratic Council in northeastern Syria. And he is alive. 
Halil closes the file and looks at Rima. Do you want to see him? he asks. Yes, she says, of course. But first, there's something Rima has to know. In Arabic, she asks, what did my brother do? Do you know if he did anything bad? Or was he a cleaner? Was he baking potatoes? You say he was with ISIS, but what was he doing with them? I don't have any information about him, Khalil says. However, he was a fighter with ISIS. He was carrying weapons in the name of the group. But what was he doing in the group? I don't know. I don't have any details. Wow, that was really quite a moment. Just like that, the tragedy in Syria has gone from being a news story to her story. Finally, she has answers, but every answer has raised more questions. Was what her brother told his captors true? Could his statement have been given under duress? And if it was true, why was he involved in ISIS? What does it mean that ISIS jailed him? Is he mentally ill? How will he get out of Syria? I keep recording as we head to the car. Yeah, she has no idea what condition he's going to be in, but she is going to go and see him uh, now. And we're going to see if we can get in with her. We get in the car, and I have to ask, how are you feeling? Like, what was your reaction when you learnt what he told you about him? It's it's hard to to hear. He put himself in so. Uh, this is this is a very risky situation for me, for him, for my family, for everybody. Yeah. So you feel like uh, sad for him, but also angry, I guess. Yes. I'm I'm more angry against him because he was not young, uh, Ruth. He was an adult. She's angry at him. But she tells me later she also blames herself. Quote, I have to live with the fact that I knew he was not okay, but I never called the doctor. We're almost to the prison. Rima is thinking about what she'll say to her brother. My question is, did you kill someone? But I'm not going to ask him now because it's not the moment. I'm going to just tell him that we are here, we're going to try to help him. And that's it for me. I'm, it's not, I'm not judge, I'm not... He should explain himself in front of a judge. Right. This is something I will hear Rima say many times in the days to come. She's not looking for mercy for her brother. She wants him to go home and to face trial. The problem with Rima's plan is that Canada has not agreed to take her brother back, even though the Kurdish forces say they would gladly give him back. Radil Halil told us back in his office that the Kurds are actually sending letters to all the different countries who have citizens in their jails. They're saying, we have this person and this person, and please come and take them, because we are in a state of war. Some countries, the US, Sudan and Russia, have done it, have taken back their citizens accused of being with ISIS, but a whole list of others haven't, including Austria, Germany, Britain and Canada. They all have different official reasons for not coming to get their people. It's not safe, there's no embassy nearby, there's no one to help these detainees. But talk to anyone who follows this and they'll tell you, it's because it's become too politically toxic. 
Few elected officials want to be known as the one who let a suspected ISIS member back into their country. We'll be back after this break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards. Then ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com embedded. Welcome to the 21st century. Do you see Jesus in the burnt toast? Do you realize that literally there's a bucket of condoms by the exit? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? We cannot just uh, say stop, I want to get off. Invisibilia, season five. No easy answers, just the right questions. Okay, we are back. And before the break, Ruth and her producers, Greg and Lemma, were on their way to the prison where Rima's brother is being held. The first voice you'll hear is Greg's. All right, so uh, where are we and what's happening? So we just rolled up to the prison, which is this like nondescript concrete building in the middle of a field. And the prison manager here has told her that she can see her brother this time, but only this time. He said this does not happen normally, but we're going to let you in. So now they've just gone and Lama is with her. So we're just going to have to wait and see. It's ten past four in the afternoon. Only one of us is allowed to go in with Rima to see her brother. So we send Lama, who speaks Arabic. When they enter the meeting, Rima decides to say Lama is a friend. And she's worried about her brother's privacy. So the only tape you'll hear was recorded when her brother was not in the room. The meeting lasts for two hours. I wait outside. After it's over, Lama sits down and tells me what happened. I took some notes. She says the meeting took place in a trailer, a mostly bare room with bright fluorescent lights. The first thing she and Rima heard was the sound of feet dragging on the rocky path outside. The door opened and there he was, Rima's brother. Amazingly, no one had told him ahead of time that his sister had come to see him. So her brother walks in and he sees her and he's completely stunned. Lemma says it was clear from the start that her brother wasn't well. He came into the room with a guard on each side to help him. He's so skinny, he can barely walk. He's, he's not wearing enough for the weather. And he's super cold. And he just like embraces her and he refuses to sit down and he's just holding her for about 15 minutes. They're well, not so they're just, they're just standing up and hugging? Yeah, exactly. And then she's tapping him on the back and saying, my brother, my brother. And he just says nothing. And so she starts whispering familiar things in his ear, like, I guess, the name of their family members. 
just saying, it's okay, it's okay. Her brother wouldn't sit down. He asked over and over how Rima got there and if she was safe. And he just kept asking, where are you staying? Are you eating? Like all the normal brotherly stuff, that's the first thing that came into his head. (laughs) What are you doing here? (laughs) And she was like, I'm just here to, I'm worried about you, don't worry about me. (laughs) Lama says at this point, the brother says he didn't feel well. And then he was just like, listen, I'm so dizzy, like, I, I need to go, I need to go. The head of the prison's like, okay, I'll take you out for 15 minutes and then you can come back if you want. So Rima's brother was escorted out for a break. Then, Lama says, they were alone. And Lama asked Rima for her first impressions of the brother she hadn't seen in four years. He cannot walk. You see that, Lama? They need help to walk over there to the room. He's very skinny. He's, he's done. What do you mean he's done? He's done psychologically. I, I feel it, he's done. I never hug him as I do today. It's the first time. How does it feel? His heart was boom, 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 boom. And he told me, I know that I hurt you. I don't know, you don't hurt me. He asked me if my father, my mother are angry against him. I said, no, they don't have time for this. They just want to have some news about him. When her brother came back, he seemed better. This time, he sat on the couch next to Rima. He asked about their parents, whether they still live in the same place. She said they do. At some point, he lightened up. He teased her about her hair, like when they were kids. But Lama says something about him didn't seem right. He kept asking Rima the names of her children, and pointing to a silver band on her hand, asking when she got married even though he's already met her husband. At one point, the question came up of why he came to Syria. He was like, yeah, you know, I couldn't like sit still. My mind was troubling me. I just felt like I had to keep moving and there were things on the internet. He was like, you know, just these things, they were confusing me. He didn't say what those things are. Yeah, at some point uh, she was saying, I want to bring you some stuff. And he was like, no, I don't need anything because the head of the prison was there. And she was like, well, I want you to have something of mine. And so she took off her scarf and he was very excited. He wrapped it around himself and he started sniffing it. All this time, Rima had made a point of smiling and staying upbeat. But after her brother left, she sat back down on the couch and started to cry. Lama had her microphone on. I keep wondering what brings you to this point, she said. All my siblings are not like this. So what's happened to him? (laughs) Yesterday, Rima didn't know where her brother was. Now she does. Her question now is, will Canada let him come home? She's asked the Canadian government for answers over and over since learning about her brother, but she says they either direct her to the Red Cross, saying they don't have any more information, 
or they send her these nondescript, bureaucratic replies, like the one we got when we asked about her brother. We are aware of Canadian citizens being detained in Syria, they wrote to us. Given the security situation on the ground, the government of Canada's ability to provide consular assistance in any part of Syria is extremely limited, they wrote. But, Rima asks me, how can it be so hard for the Canadian government to overcome the security situation if she made it here all on her own? Canada dragging its feet on this is painful to Rima because it goes against something she understood to be fundamental. That is, what it means to be a citizen. The way Rima sees it, to be a citizen is to get help from your country when you're in trouble, to be able to stand trial when you do something wrong. It's a relationship. Canada gives me everything. I grew up over there. They give me education. Uh, this, this, this country, it's for me the most beautiful country in the world. And I have so, so much pain that I have to fight my mother. Her mother. She's talking about Canada. But here's the problem. Even if the Canadian government did let her brother come back, how do you put someone on trial for something he allegedly did in Syria, where evidence is not easy to get? Not to mention, this is not exactly a popular stance in any Western country, where most of these people are seen as having joined a group hell-bent on destroying the West. I put this to Rima. What do you say to people who say that these people who joined ISIS, they made that decision, they joined a terrorist organization, why should they be allowed back into their countries? To face justice. As a country, we, we decide that we're going to respect each human. We decide this. And now, I just want that each person who do something wrong to face justice, even my brother. And I promise you, Ruth, I promise you, I look in your eyes, if you give me the proof that he do something wrong, I think that he should to pay. But if he do nothing, I think he need help. The day before she leaves Syria, Rima goes to the market to buy gifts for her brother. She picks foods to remind him of home, honey, almonds, and Nutella, to remind him of when they were kids and their mum would ration out the Nutella and she'd beg her brother for his share. Then Rima goes to a prison guard and hands him the gifts. She asks if she can see her brother again. It's a logical question, but the answer is still no. We know of at least four other Canadian men being held in Syria indefinitely for joining ISIS. And experts believe there are at least six Canadian women and 11 Canadian children who are being detained. And now that ISIS has been driven out of all its territory, those numbers could go up. This story was reported by Ruth Sherlock and Lama Al-Aryan with help from Greg Dixon and Kamiran Sadun. 
It was produced by Chris Benderev and Eric Menel and edited by Lisa Pollock. We had editing help from Larry Kaplow, Mark Memet, and Noor Wazwaz. Fact-checking by Greta Pittenger. Our lawyer is Ashley Messenger. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans. Big thanks to Will Dobson, Neil Carruth, Anya Grundman, and Chris Turpin. Thanks also to Amarnath Amarasingam, Stephanie Carvin, Jawad Rizkala, and David York. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. And thanks. <laughs>